Turn in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 52, actually, page 613 in the Pew Bible. By the way, the uh, Tiltons pulled in, the truck pulled in at 8 o'clock last night, and uh, I think they got to bed after midnight, and they're here, the kids, glad to have them over here, a whole bunch of them, so uh, you can... If, if you've not gotten to meet Carrie, and uh, I haven't gotten to meet the kids, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure I'll scare them to death as we all with all these strange people coming up. Uh, I always couldn't understand until I was a grown-up why all these strange people would come up to me and be so interested in me and love me, it seemed like. And I thought, I've never met you before in my life. But now I've seen it happen hundreds of times that couples that I just love so much and they'll have... A child, you know, and I may not see the child until it's two or three, and then I just think, you know, I love it like I love them. And of course, the child's like, eh, get away from me. You're going to love me, kid. Actually, we're going to read, beginning with chapter 52, verse 1. As I continued in my study in the week, I kind of shifted into chapter 52, and We're going to, in fact, read parts of 53 in preparation for our communion time. But I've just drawn uh, trust by the Spirit of God to some of the things in chapter 52 as I was studying the the first three verses that I was going to deal with in the end of chapter 52. So we'll get the context uh, for those verses beginning in, in verse 1. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually, continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste. And you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord, bless the proclamation of your word that your truth will transform our lives and enable us to trust you and exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give the setting for this, and the setting really is the, the whole book of Isaiah. What, what is a, Isaiah addressing? What situation is he speaking into? And that's going to really basically form our, our first point. And it is this, and this not only applies to their day, but it applies to us and to all people everywhere. All people are either immersed in or they struggle with spiritual adultery. All people are either immersed in or they struggle with spiritual adultery. That includes all of us here. This whole book is addressed to a people that had turned from God to serve idols. And it is defined as prostitution. This is explicit in Hosea chapter 1 as he talks about it, or Ezekiel in chapter 16 as he talks about it. Motir puts it this way. It is the debasing of oneself with unworthy lovers for gain. Debasing of oneself with unworthy lovers for gain. In Deuteronomy 8, it's called three times forgetting God. Imagine a woman whose husband leaves her for another woman and she has the terrible experience of being forgotten. She's not in his mind anymore. She's not at the center of his thoughts and affections. He's with another and she is forgotten. Adultery. And that is what God addresses the people of God. Even before they enter into the land, do not forget me. And this book is addressing that spiritual idolatry, forgetting God himself. And, of course, it applies to us so that other lovers fill our hearts and desires and attentions. And God is no longer the reason we are living. His will is no longer important to us. Just a few chapters over in chapter 57, you can see God's own description of it. In verse five, he says, you burn with lust among the oaks. The oaks are the places where they worship their false gods. See, you burn with lust, not literally sexually, but you burn with lust for your false gods under every green tree. You slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. You see, this sacrificing of their children in this horrible worship of false gods, even that's called a lust, a desire after other gods. And he says in verse 7, on a high and lofty mountain, you've set your bed and there you went up to offer sacrifice. You see the association? You sacrificed the false gods. You went to bed with them. 
behind the door and doorpost. You've set up your memorial deserting me. You've uncovered your bed. You've gone up to it. You've made it wide. You've made a covenant. You've loved their bed. You've looked on nakedness. See how graphic it is. Now, if you want to get to PG-13, turn to Ezekiel 16. You'll think, children, don't read that chapter. Just skip it in your Bible reading. It's that graphic in describing how Israel has gone after false gods. This is at the root of all of our sin, spiritual adultery, forgetting God. And for Israel, this meant abandoning their allegiance and obedience to God to serve other gods, especially those who represented power and fertility. Power against their enemies. You see, selling them to a God that they think may protect them against enemies. Selling themselves to gods that may, they think, bring fruitfulness to the land. So to have this success, they debase themselves with unworthy lovers for gain. In other words, sleeping with other gods in order to get something you don't think you can get from God himself. That's at the root of our sin. When we give ourselves to sin, then we sell out. We give ourselves to false lovers in exchange for payment for what we think will be happiness or protection or security or control or pleasure or influence or fame. But here's another interesting thing that happens when we prostitute ourselves with other gods When I do that to try to satisfy my needs, then I begin to use and abuse people to satisfy my needs as well. I manipulate others to try to get them to do what I want. They become part of my idolatry. I ignore them if I don't think they're useful to me. I flatter them if they are useful to me. And it looks like I like them. But I'm just using them. I make friends accordingly. What appears to be love and concern can simply be an extension of my spiritual idolatry and and prostitution. So that I'm at the core of my world and I'm grabbing on to anything that will fill me or protect me. Whether things or people. So here's a key concept in spiritual prostitution. Real sacrificial love that is truly devoted to the good of another at whatever cost to myself. That kind of love is not a high value in spiritual prostitution, to say the least. Spiritual prostitution, such love is useless. We become manipulators and oppressors. We ignore people or pay attention to people according to their usefulness. And so many of us, as Francis Schaeffer puts it, have the idol of personal peace and affluence. If you're committed to that, where do the poor come into play? If that's your idol. If that's your idol, why would you envision your children losing their health and well-being on the mission field? No way. Not when that is our idol. But see, that's why in the first chapter of Isaiah, there are references to their idolatry And constant references to their oppression of the fatherless and the widow. See the connection for them? They they worship these false gods in order that these gods might return something to them. And so they treated people in the same way. So as we come to this 
chapter, we have to ask this question. What are my idolatries? Am I governed by an idolatry or by a love for God himself? If, if you're completely governed by idolatries as a way of life, it could be an indication and likely that you're not a believer at all. You've not begun to believe in the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. To entrust your whole life to him. But you're still basically holding on to something else in life that you're depending on to bring you life. However, no Christian is completely free of this spiritual idolatry or we'd be completely free of sin. And then you and I have to ask this question as a part of my idolatry. Who am I oppressing? In that, who am I ignoring or leaving out? Who am I using or manipulating because of my spiritual idolatry? That's where it really shows itself and how we treat people. So this is the life setting of Isaiah and it's our life setting. Spiritual prostitution, as he describes it here, is is an enslavement. It governs us and and its power is over us and it rules us. And then its guilt infects us. It contaminates our consciences that we are enslaved to this. The guilt of how we've hurt people can plague us. And then we carry with that guilt the pain of how people have hurt us and used us. And and that pain uh, causes us to want to alleviate it and harden ourselves against it. With more spiritual adultery, we hurt others because we've been hurt. And this all brings final condemnation and judgment from God. So as Isaiah describes Israel in the first chapter, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. That's a life devoted to something other than God. Sick and dying. As Paul puts it at the end of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? So, first point. All people are immersed in or struggle with spiritual adultery. But two, and this is the last point. What? Two points? God can and does release people from their spiritual adultery. God can and he does release people from their spiritual adultery. And let's dig in some to the text and trace it through in chapter 52. Notice he says, put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments. This basically means be what you are. He's already describing what he's going to do and And yet he says, put it on. This is who you are. This is what I've made you to be a completely new people and beautiful garments refer to the priesthood. And he says there will be no more the uncircumcised and the unclean. So he's saying, I will separate you out from your impurities and you will be pure in your devotion to me. You will be like a, a nation of priests. How he had declared them to be at Mount Sinai and they had drifted from it. Now he's declaring you indeed are going to be this kingdom of priests. 
And he says, shake yourself from the dust, your humility, your brokenness, your wretchedness, your degradation and loose the bonds of your slavery. And he says, be seated. This is the idea of kingship. So right off the bat, he's saying, put on your new priesthood, your new intimacy with God, your new purity, your new kingship that I'm bringing to bear. And this is so encouraging in verse three, he says you were sold for nothing. That means that in your you're being sold into this enslavement to idolatry. No money exchanged hands. Which means that the way is wide open for you to come back. It's not a done deal. And for each one of you, this is so encouraging. No matter how deep you feel like you're plunged into sin and to spiritual enslavement and idolatry, it's not a done deal. No money has exchanged hands. You have the way open to be brought back. But notice, and and this is a a suspenseful mystery here in verse 3, You shall be redeemed. This means that there must be some way to redeem you, something that's being given to redeem you. But it's without money. What is it? That's the question that arises. There's a way open for you to be bought back and I'm going to buy you back. But it's not going to be with money. So we begin to wonder, what is he talking about here? Then he summarizes, as Motir puts it, All of the oppression of Israel from A to Z, from Egypt Egypt to begin with, to Assyria, which was taking place right then and there. And all of this oppression, he says, and then he describes the agony of it in in the next verse, the, the blasphemy of the situation that his name is despised. And then a very important verse, verse six. Therefore, my people shall know my name. And in the original, it reads like this. They shall know my name. Therefore, in that day that it is I who speak here am I. Now, this what's so important about this is in verse 13, when he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Behold is a word that means basically, hey, underscore what follows. Put in bold print what comes after this. It's very important. Don't miss what follows. Well, that word behold is used in verse six at the end where he says, here am I. In other words, behold, I. And the point is, when he talks about his servant, we're made to go back and say, wait a minute. This is God who is present. Here am I. It is I who speak. It is I who is and being known. My name shall be made known here. So the point of this passage is that God himself will act for God's people and he will make his own name known, even though it is going to be through his servant in verse 13. Then the most wonderful passage, one of the great passages in the Old Testament, one of the most famous. When an army would go to war, the last thing that you would want to see if your army has gone to war, you're on the city and you're standing on the ramparts and you're looking over the wall, waiting for hours, perhaps for days even to see what the result of the war is going to be. You don't want to see a bunch of straggling, wounded soldiers stumbling back to your city because, you know, not only has the army been defeated, But that army, the opposing army, is coming right behind these pathetic, broken soldiers. And they're going to ransack and rape and ruin your city 
It's all over. It's all over. But if instead you see a runner, a runner who's coming and running and he's got a spring in his step and and you're looking hopefully and he gets closer and closer and he begins to yell, peace, peace, the war is over, the war is done, the bondage, the oppressor has been defeated, we're free and he's just running and happy. And then people, the guys on the rampart start yelling and rejoicing. And then the rejoicing floods and the whole city becomes like a choir of singing and rejoicing. The battle is over. That's the feel of verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. It's peace. It's good news of happiness. There is no sadness, only happiness. And there is release from the oppressor. Why? Your God reigns. He trumps everything. Though you are lost in your spiritual prostitution, the Lord reigns and he is bringing salvation to you. He is bringing not just this is not military salvation. It's something much bigger, much deeper that is being addressed in Isaiah It is the spiritual enslavement of God's people. And so he traces through in verse 8 and verse 9 this this rejoicing that is occurring. And then verse 10, notice, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. This, This arm stands for the person in action and power to get things done. In a sense, rolling up his sleeves and accomplishing the work. That is there. And here's the God, God reigning and God acting and doing what is necessary to bring about this salvation so that the whole earth recognizes it. And then in verses 11 and 12, he he really is talking in terms of the exodus out of Egypt. But this time he says, you're going to go forth and it's not going to be hastily for fear that Pharaoh will change his mind, not getting out of Dodge while the getting's good. You'll just go out in safety and comfort and security and strength. The Lord will go before you. He will be your rear guard. Actually, the other time that's mentioned is when the priests were marching around Jericho and there was an army of men in front and in back. And that's the picture. You're surrounded by the God of Israel. Even as he came behind Israel and protected her against the Egyptians, God will be your protection on every hand. What a glorious declaration of God's salvation that is coming. And in the wake of that, we're wondering, well, how is it going to happen? What's going to happen? How specifically are you saving us? What is this redemption without money? How how is peace going to be brought about? What is exactly this good news? And then right on the heels... Verse 13, behold, my servant, my servant, the servant was mentioned in the same phrase, behold, my servant back in chapter 42. And there's a a kind of completion and a final laying out of what that servanthood means. And we can understand the first part of this. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted because he's talked about the salvation of God and bearing his holy arm and God reigning. And so that kind of language we can understand if this servant, this mighty one 
is going to be high and lifted up. The problem is he says too much about this servant here. High and lifted up. The only other time that's been used is to to describe God himself. In Isaiah 6, he's the one high and lifted up. In chapter 57, verse 15, he's the high and lifted up one. He's uniquely the high and lifted up one. And yet now the servant is said to be high and lifted up. Or he says he should be exalted. Well, back in chapter two, it says all of the pride of man will be debased, but the Lord alone will be exalted. And yet now the servant is exalted. So that's one thing that makes us scratch our head that somehow, some way, this is the same God who is exalted. And now he's acting in the servant. And you're made to wonder, is he the servant? It's the servant, God himself, because how in the world could he say anything about him that should only be said about God? And yet you're saying it of the servant. And then as well, you said, I am here. I speak. I act. And now the servant acts this way. But here, here's the problem. Here's the thing that just astonishes us even as it talks about astonishment. Verse 14, this high exalted one bearing the arm of God's power, redeeming, reigning. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It it doesn't mean that he suffered more than anyone else, but that he suffered a disfigurement from even being an individual, from even belonging to mankind. It's a way to, to say he was totally dehumanized, totally cast off in judgment and suffering from the whole lot of humanity. Like a man thrown overboard and the ship and all of its warmth and safety and provision goes off and he just sinks in the black darkness all by himself. That's the way it describes him. And it, and it says that everyone is repelled. We're astonished at him. The king shut their mouths because of him. And it says he will sprinkle many nations And this could mean the word could mean startled many nations. Some take it as that. But even if it's the sprinkling, it means that they are utterly astonished and appalled that he will sprinkle. He will act in that way. Even then, there's some question. What does he mean by this? But the basic point here, and it continues in chapter 53, who could understand this? Who could get their minds around this? The one who is bearing his mighty arm is the one who suffers. How could it be? How could it be that this one who bears the arm of God, he couldn't even recognize him as a human being because of the horrible suffering, the extent to which he went to save his people? And then we begin to understand as we get into chapter 53. Notice in verse 5, it says, He was crushed for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with His stripes we are healed. So when it says earlier, how beautiful are the upon the mountains of the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, then we finally understand because He was wounded and crushed in the chastisement of, of this One, that's what brought us peace. That's what heals us. The Lord, in verse 6, has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And it says in the last, it says in verse 13 that He shall act wisely. It means that He will accomplish His purpose. He will bring it about as He declared. And in verse 11 it says, Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. He will make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. So, the wisdom, the great accomplishment, the great unveiling of power and glory finds itself in suffering. This is a shocking turn in Isaiah. Unbelievable. But it's meant to read kind of like this, and this is how Oswald puts it. In the beginning, they will be shocked at the depths to which the Savior falls. But in the end, they will be overcome that His sufferings were for them. They're shocked that He could suffer so much. The passion of Christ, of course, was an effort, at least for the physical part of that, to try to capture the, the extent of those sufferings. And yet, it didn't even touch upon the spiritual degradation to which He descended as our Savior. But this is what enables us to be set free from our guilt. All of that, here, here's the amazing thing. All of your spiritual prostitution and adultery, He came and bore the guilt of it. He bore the guilt of it as though He Himself had been the one who prostituted Himself to God. He bore infinite punishment and anger and wrath as though he were the one that had so committed such travesty against God. That's why Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He was made sin on our behalf. Why would he go to such extent? So that the Lord can look at you and smile and say, come and receive complete forgiveness, you spiritual adulterers. And come and receive healing. Come and receive transformation. Come and be touched by the very love of God so that you no longer will have to be a grasping idolater embracing all the misery and curse of it. But you can walk in new love and obedience because you are loved by the very God that you've hated. That's at the root of Christianity. There is no Christianity apart from that. Apart from understanding that God has unveiled His mighty arm to save. He has published His salvation. And what is the mighty arm that saved? It is none other than, than, than arms that were put on a cross. than a body that was broken and torn for our sake. And now He offers Himself freely to us for our forgiveness. 
to turn over to the bulletin. And see Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2. This is in the very context of the suffering servant. And here's the invitation from God. Let us read it together. Verses one and two. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. You see the subtle, the implied statement about your spiritual idolatry. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, which will not satisfy Come and receive that which is good. Now turn back to Isaiah 53. Instead of the Nicene Creed, I'd like for us to. I will read and you follow along. Not all, but part of this chapter as a preparation for communion. Verse one, who has believed what they heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors and the people of God said, Amen.